Marketing Week Meets, sponsored by Salesforce's intelligent one-to-one -one customer journeys. Helping you achieve higher revenue, happier customers, and lower costs. Hello and welcome to Marketing Week Meets, a monthly podcast in which we speak to a marketing luminary about their life, career and thoughts on the state of the marketing universe. Our criteria for interview subjects is this, people who have made a mark in marketing and of course have an opinion or two. Our guest today ticks both of those boxes. Before we get started with today's podcast, I just wanted to let you know that we recorded it by telephone. So there were one or two little connection issues, but hopefully nothing that will get in the way of you enjoying what is a fantastic podcast. Cindy Gallup is one of the most celebrated figures in advertising. Beginning her career in agencies in 1985, she had stints at Ted Bates, JWT and the now defunct Gold Greenless Trot before joining and becoming board director at BBH Europe in 1989. Notably, she launched the agency's US arm in 1998 before leaving the agency world in 2005 to set up her own consultancy, which she still runs today. She is a passionate campaigner for the eradication of sexism and ageism in the advertising industry and beyond, and also an entrepreneur founding and running social sex video sharing platform Make Love Not Porn, a celebration of real world sex as a counterpoint to porn in 2009. She says of herself, I don't do status quo. I like to blow shit up. I am the Michael Bay of business. Welcome, Cindy. Thank you. It's thrilled to be here. That quote that I've just read out, what does it mean to blow shit up? I was doing a meeting with a consultancy client um, many years ago, and I was talking about what I do. And, you know, I spoke about the fact that I work very selectively, only with clients and brands who want to change the game in their particular sector. So you come to me for radical, innovative, groundbreaking, transformative. I don't do status quo. And so I summed up what I do as, I like to blow shit up. I am the Michael Bay of business. And I, and I did it lightheartedly in this meeting. And I thought, actually, that's a pretty good summation. And so I'm going to keep that. And, and that is now my you know, LinkedIn bio, Twitter bio line, et cetera. But um, there is a very specific reason why um, I use that um, descriptor. I'm a great believer in be your own filter. Um, when I say that's what I do, it attracts to me the people who want what I do and it repels the ones who don't. And I sure as hell want to repel the ones who don't because they're a waste of time, effort and money. And so I encourage people um, to, to, to be your own filter as much as possible because you absolutely want to bring to you the people who want what you do are buying what you're selling and you want to stay away from the ones who have no interest in it whatsoever. I alluded in my uh, introduction, uh, you're obviously a passionate campaigner for removing uh, injustice in, in the industry and eradicating sexism and ageism. Um, where did that sort of campaigning spirit come from? Um, I guess um, a couple of things. Um, the first is, to be frank, Russell, all I'm doing is I am living and working my values. So um, one of my personal philosophies is that everything in life and business starts with you and your values. And so I exhort people, and, and I exhort people because not enough people do this. I encourage everyone to take a long, hard look into yourself. 
and to ask yourself, what do I believe in? What do I value? What do I stand for? What am I all about? To identify your beliefs and values, and then to live your life and work your work according to those values. And so, you know, my championing of diversity in all its forms um, came about just because I absolutely believe in equality of opportunity for everybody. But, but the other place that comes from is I am a hard-headed businesswoman. It breaks my heart to see our industry leaving spectacular amounts of money on the table, failing to reinvent itself for the future, failing to innovate and disrupt in the way it could be doing so much better um, in so many ways, including making a shit ton more money. And so that is why I champion diversity in all its forms, because, you know, our industry likes to think of its glory days as being in the past, you know, the era of Madison Avenue, you know, the days when, you know, um, brands were built by unifying everybody across the nation. And as far as I'm concerned, our industry's glory days have not even begun because we have not even begun to see what our industry could be when it fully taps into and leverages the talent, creativity and skills of women, people of colour, LGBTQ, the disabled and everybody who is currently considered other. And so, you know, my championing of diversity is driven by a very clear understanding of what that could deliver that would completely reinvent our industry for the future. And that's why I'm so passionate about it. Does something more need to be done? Obviously, you and many like you are prompting and provoking, but does something else need to be done to force people to make those changes? So, um, oh my God, I mean, so much more needs to happen. Um, here's the fundamental issue. At the top of our industry is a closed loop of white guys talking to white guys about other white guys. Those white guys are sitting very pretty. They have their enormous salaries, their gigantic bonuses, their huge pools of stock options, their lavish expense accounts. Why on earth? Would they ever want to rock the boat? Oh, 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 they have to talk diversity. They have to appoint a chief diversity officer. They have to have diversity initiatives. They have to say the word diversity a lot, especially in public and especially to the media. Secretly, deep down inside, they don't want to change a thing because the system is working just fine for them as it currently is. It's like the old joke about the light bulb. How many therapists does it take to change a light bulb? Only one, but the light bulb really has to want to change. And in this case, the light bulb does not really want to change. So um, obviously what I would love to see is many more leaders who genuinely want to change and make that happen. But that is why um, I encourage everybody to do two things. The first is... You know, because of what I've just said, change happens from the bottom up, not the top down. Every one of us, every single day, taking micro actions, tiny, small, easy to do actions, so easy to do that why wouldn't you do them, 
um, to, to change what we want to see change cumulatively adds up at scale to enormous impact. So first of all, I encourage everybody who feels as strong about this as I do to, to do things every single day that they can do to change it. But secondly, um, I now encourage women, people of colour, LGBTQ, disabled, older people, all of the people who are subject to systemic bias and discrimination um, to start their own industry. And so I encourage everybody to start their own agency. And I use the word agency in quotes because I don't mean by that an agency like the ones that we see all around us currently. I mean, start something that gives you agency, that enables you to create what you want to create, to build it the way you want to build it and to make money the way you want to make it and to succeed the way that you want to succeed. And, you know, I've been I've been encouraging this for a number of years now. I started out wanting to try and help change the system. I now accept I cannot change the system. Um, I regularly am very candid with people about the fact that I have spectacularly failed at making anything happen systemically. And so now I encourage everybody to start their own business and to reinvent the industry that way. You mentioned ageism. If you could illustrate what you see and what are the consequences. Sure. So um, our industry is ageist as hell. Um, And, you know, I've been observing that and speaking out about it for years. Um, Essentially, um, older people, and by the way, especially older women um, who, you know, run into the double whammy of ageism and sexism, are managed out of the industry. Um, And that is, again, a huge loss to the business. Because... um, Older people, or as I like to call us, experts, are repositories of the most extraordinary amount of talent and creativity and skills. I mean, think about it. How much do you want your business to benefit from employees who, when faced with any kind of business crisis, know exactly what to do to solve it because they've been there 50 million times before? Employees who... Um, because of the years they've spent doing this, have built up tremendous people management skills, something our industry does not specifically coach and train for, by the way. You only learn that from experience. Um, Employees who have huge amounts of something our industry is constantly bemoaning the lack of, craft skills, technical capabilities. You know, employees who keep a cool head in moments of stress, can calm down everybody else around them. What all of that adds up to um, is employees who, because of those skills and capabilities, are enormously time and cost efficient for your business. Every agency, every brand, every client company could be making so much more money if they valued and hired and promoted and retained older employees. Not least also because the future of work is hybrid. The future of work is cross-generational. The fresh perspectives and objectives and insights of young people combined with the experience, expertise, and equally innovative perspectives and insights of older people 
is absolutely what will deliver business success. And within the conventional um, corporate structure, you know, it's based on the idea that, you know, the, um, the older you get, the higher you progress. There are very few opportunities for young people and older people to interact as equals on an equal basis as partners within projects, within pitches, on accounts. And that's what our industry would enormously benefit from. There seems to be, as you mentioned there, a very strong and undisputable business case for diversity, age diversity in this case. So is it is it what what what's keeping the blinkers on? I mean I've heard it expressed that there is a slavish devotion to youth, perhaps even more so in the digital age when everybody's perhaps over concerned about the shiny new thing. I just wondered what your thoughts on despite the evidence to the contrary, why those why this ageism still exists? Because in a male-dominated industry, um, men desperately want to be younger. Women don't care as much, by the way. And so, and so men want to, um, the, the men who lead our industry, um, regrettably, um, think that younger is better, want to surround themselves with younger people, especially, by the way, all too often, um, again, again, because the gender inequality means that women are not seen and respected as professional equals with a huge amount to offer. Many male leaders in our industry want to surround themselves with young, attractive women. Um, and that is, um, to your point, absolutely putting the blinkers on when it comes to innovating and disrupting and making a shit ton more money. Um, so they're absolutely shooting themselves in the foot by this focus on youth. Now, um, I hasten to add, by the way, that... Um, I encourage everyone to challenge ageism at every point along the age spectrum, because actually you can be dismissed for being too young as much as you can be dismissed for being too old, especially, again, unfortunately, if you're female. The opinions of younger women are not taken seriously and are dismissed much more than the opinions of, of younger men in our industry and generally. And so, you know, to, in, in, in the work I do trying to open our industry's eyes to the issue of ageism and then help them see the options they can take to change that. Um, it's absolutely about um, talking to younger people about um, ensuring that they don't perpetuate ageism too. And when you do that, by the way, um, it's very interesting. So, so I, I just published this week in Ad Age um, a piece on eight ways to end ageism in our industry. And that came about as the result of many, many conversations with many people in our industry. And one of the things um, that I've talked about um, in that piece, and again, I've, I've been talking about this generally for years, but um, I have a huge issue with um, the long-running Evian Water campaign tagline, Live Young. It assumes that everybody aspires to live young. We have spectacularly failed as an industry to leverage strategically and creatively the enormous aspirational possibilities of live older. Because actually, you know, we older people are living the lives that younger people aspire to and want. Because at this age, we don't give a shit. We have the confidence of all of our experience. We know what matters. We know what we want. We know what we care about, you know, in relationships, in life, in work. 
Um, we have our own sense of style, personal style, home style. We have independence. We have freedom. Um, we have, by the way, um, money and the desire to spend it. Um, millennials, um, unfortunately, um, for this generation of millennials, are worse off than ever before um, everywhere because of, um, because of the economy. Um, and so actually, you know, to um, celebrate our aspirational lifestyle as we live older, which young people want to emulate um, and completely flip that agenda, um, as opposed to the other way around, which happens all too often in our industry. I suppose you've, we've seen, haven't we, and you've just mentioned there, uh, lots of examples of advertising creative that is based upon dumb, age-based stereotypes. Um, if you want to, any examples of some of the worst ones that you've seen? Well, to, well, well, to, to be frank, I mean, the, um, the cliches are incredibly obvious. You know, um, older people in advertising are depicted um, um, along a range um, that goes from at one end, the beautiful, white-haired, blue-eyed, they're always white, by the way, you know, walking along a beach, golden retriever gambling at their side, you know, ludicrously, um, they're older, but they still have it beautiful. Um, all the way to um, comical, ridiculous caricatures. And, you know, again, I've been saying this for years. Um, the future is not about stereotypes. The future is real. And that's why, you know, I am not a fan, actually, of the word diversity. Because for me, it's not about diversity. It's about humanity. All we talk about when we talk about the need for diversity is the need to reflect the world as it really is. And so I'm calling on our industry to reflect the way the world really is in, in advertising, in marketing. Um, and in order to do that, you have to reflect the world as it really is within the teams who are creating and approving and producing and directing and overseeing that advertising. And so, you know, um, with older people, just as with women, people of color, again, LGBTQ, the disabled, you know, I want to see the world reflected as it really is in advertising in a way that is just matter of fact and, and inherently empathetic and sensitive and respectful. And the way you do that is very simply by having those people creating and approving and producing and directing and overseeing the ads. And by the way, you know, I, I pick my words very carefully there. Note that I say not just creating but approving the ads. Because it doesn't matter um, how much you bring in the token diverse creative team into the creative department, or you go, oh, look, we've got one, two, three women in our creative department. If the ads are still being approved through the lens of the white male ECD, then you are never going to get to advertising that reflects the world as it really is. Marketing Week meets sponsored by Salesforce, helping you to connect to your customers in a whole new way. After the Harvey Weinstein story broke in 2017, you issued a rallying call for people in agencies and brands to call out people that are committed harassment and committed to publishing those names. Why did you issue such a public call? So, um, I've been speaking out about sexual harassment publicly for years, since long before Me Too, and I've been doing that because nobody else would. 
And so over the years, I've had many women um, write to me in our industry. And I've been encouraging them again for years to tell their stories. And they were always too petrified to. So when, when the Harvey Weinstein expose broke um, and all of these brave women came out and, and spoke up publicly, I thought maybe now um, is, is the point at which finally our industry will feel emboldened to name names as well. And to be frank, uh, when I put that call out, and I put it out as a Facebook post and I, I didn't think a huge amount about it. I just posted on Facebook back in October 2017 you know, women of the ad industry, you know, the time has finally come to call out the Harvey Weinsteins of our industry and name names. You know, email me and I'll help you get those stories published. And I did not anticipate the avalanche of emails that, that I then proceeded to receive. Um, <clears throat> because my, my, my post went viral, it got covered in, in the media. And I got a ton of emails from everywhere in the world. So my inbox was global and I got emails from women and from men. And I have to say that I'd always known it was bad, but I'd never known how bad it really was. And, and for the next few months, and, and I'm still getting these emails at regular intervals, but um, for the next few months um, in fall of 2017, um, I would wake up in the morning and I would dread opening my inbox. Um, because I was just so horrified and appalled and depressed at what had what showed up in it. And, and that was why, um, you know, three weeks after I put out that call, I was keynoting the 3% conference um, and I had a whole keynote I'd written. And at the last minute, I rewrote it to make the first half of it all about um, what, what I was seeing. And I would urge your listeners to go to YouTube and look up my 3% conference keynote of um, 2017. It's called Where the Money Is, because um, that was its, its original topic. It was about where to innovate in our industry to make a ton of money. Um, but as I say, the first 15 minutes of that 30-minute talk are all about um, Me Too in our industry. Um, and, you know, to, um, th um, that that is something that I've been um, focused on ever since, because that avalanche completely changed my own thinking. Up till that point, I'd been saying publicly for years that diversity was the biggest business issue facing our industry. And after that, I realized, and this is what, 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 what I've now been speaking about, that diversity is not the biggest business issue facing our industry, sexual harassment is. Because sexual harassment manages women out of our industry. It derails women's careers, it destroys women's ambitions, it crushes women's dreams. And so sexual harassment keeps out of leadership, power and influence, the female leaders who would make equality, diversity and inclusion happen. And that's why that is the single business issue everyone in our industry should be focused on solving. I know it's ongoing, as you've just mentioned, but... Is I mean, do you judge it a success what you began back in twenty seventeen? Um, no, not in the slightest. Um, I stood on the stage at the Three Percent Conference in twenty eighteen, one year later, and 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 I said to the audience because I, I I owed them this update. I said I stood here a year ago, and I called on all of you in our industry to finally speak up 
and name names and break these stories. And I said, I have spectacularly failed in my attempt to help you do that. And and I've failed because um, completely understandably, the many women and men who've contacted me are too terrified to, to speak up in the media. They're too terrified because the powerful men doing the harassing are the gatekeepers of everything. They are the gatekeepers of jobs, promotions, pay raises, awards, reputation, careers. And I said to the audience, I failed, but I I want you to know that I'm never giving up. Powerful men in our industry who think you've gotten away with it, you haven't. Powerful women in our industry who have enabled and covered up the powerful men, you haven't gone away with it either. Because I am absolutely committed to doing everything I can to helping everybody break these stories, and I will not stop doing that. Let me take you back uh, to the beginning of your career in advertising. Why why did you decide to go into it in the first place? Oh, um, so um, everything in my life and career has happened by accident. Um, And I um, I read English at Oxford, and I fell mad in love with theatre at Oxford, and decided that that was all I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And um, the Oxford Careers um, Advisory people said to me, you should go into advertising. I went, no, I want to go into theatre. Um, so um, at Oxford, I did everything. I, I acted, directed, wrote, stage managed. I was president of my college, Somerville Drama Society. Um, I also used to draw a lot when I was younger. And so my friends at Oxford um, pulled me into designing theatre posters for their shows. And from there, I, I got sucked into selling and promoting those shows. And I really enjoyed that. I knew I wasn't good enough to be an actress or a director. And so I basically worked as a publicity and marketing manager in theatre for several years. Um, I was assistant to the director of the Sherman Theatre in Cardiff. Um, I was the publicity and marketing manager at the Yvonne Arno Theatre in Guildford and then at the Everman Theatre in Liverpool. And after a few years of doing that, I got completely fed up with working 24-7 and earning chicken feed, which is what happens in the theatre. And around the time that I was beginning to think that maybe I did not want to do theatre the rest of my life, um, I gave a talk um, while I was at the FMN to a group of women um, on Merseyside, because part of my job promoting the theatre was to give talks to, to groups about it. And after the talk, the woman came up to me and she said, young lady, you could sell a fridge to an Eskimo. And I thought, okay, that is the universe telling me something. Time to sell out the establishment and go into advertising. And so I did. So that's how that happened. Uh, you've obviously worked in some big companies and you've done lots of work uh, in companies that you've founded yourself. What would you say in your career to date is, is a highlight? Um, honestly, um, leaving the corporate world of advertising in 2005. Um, because um, basically how that happened um, was I turned 45 in 2005, had my very own personal midlife crisis, in the sense that I'd always thought of 45 as kind of a midlife point. Um, Obviously, by the way, in the happy assumption, one lives to be 90, fingers crossed. Um, But I always thought that on one's 45th birthday is the moment when you should pause, take stock, reflect and review, where have I been, where am I going? So on February 1, 2005, I duly did that. And that was the point at which I went, oh, my God, I've just worked 16 years for the same advertising agency. 
an absolutely wonderful agency. Um, and honestly, I cannot say enough nice things about um, BBH. Um, I'd worked for them in London, in Singapore, New York. Um, I mean, the time had flown by. And I went, wow, I think it might be time to do something else. And then the problem was I hadn't the faintest idea what. I'd always said to people that advertising is a great industry to work in to find out what you want to do next because you come into contact with so many different sectors, companies, you know, clients, brands. So I'd always thought that my next big thing would kind of bubble up from the ether. And there I was at the age of 45, and it hadn't. So vast amounts of thought and angsting ensued. And eventually I went, if I want to review every possible option open to me, for what is effectively the second half of my life, maybe the best thing to do is to put myself on the market very publicly and go, okay, guys, here I am. What do you got? So I took a massive leap into the unknown. I resigned in the summer of 2005 as chairman of BBH New York without a job to go to. And it was the best bloody thing I ever did in my life. Because I am now evangelical about working for yourself. The mistake a lot of people make is thinking that a job is the safe option. It's not. In a job, you are at the complete mercy of management changes, industry downturns, marketplace dynamics. I say to people, whose hands would you rather place your future in? Those of the large corporate entity who at the end of the day doesn't give a shit about you, or somebody who will always have your best interests at heart, i.e. you. You launched the social sex video sharing platform, Make Love Not Porn, in 2009, a celebration of real-world sex as a counterpoint to porn. What was your motivation for that launch? Sure. So again, Make Love Not Porn was a complete accident. Um, I date younger men. Um, they tend to be men in their 20s. And 11 or 12 years ago, I began realising through dating younger men that I was encountering an issue that honestly would never have crossed my mind if I had not encountered it very intimately and personally. I realised I was experiencing what happens when two things converge. And I stress the dual convergence because most people think it's only one thing. I realised I was encountering what happens when today's total freedom of access to porn online meets our society's equally total reluctance to talk openly and honestly about sex. When those two things converge, porn inevitably becomes, by default, sex education in not a good way. So I found myself encountering a number of sexual behavioural memes in bed. I went, whoa, I know where that behaviour is coming from. I thought, gosh, if I'm experiencing this, other people must be as well. I didn't know that because 11, 12 years ago, no one was talking about this. Nobody was writing about it. And I'm a very action-oriented person. <clears throat> and so I went, I want to do something about this. So 10 years ago, I put up a no money, a tiny clunky website at makelovenotporn.com that posted the myths of porn and balanced them with reality. It was just words, um, porn world versus real world. I had the opportunity to launch Make Love Not Porn at TED, which I've been going to for many years. This was TED 2009. Um, I became the only TED speaker to say the words, come on my face, on the TED stage, six times succession. The talk went viral immediately as a result, and it drove this extraordinary global response to my tiny website that I had never anticipated. And I realised I'd uncovered a huge global social issue. So I, I felt a personal responsibility to take Make Love Not Porn forwards in a way that would make it much more far-reaching, helpful and effective. 
And I also saw an opportunity to do what I believe in very strongly, which is that the future of business is doing good and making money simultaneously. I saw an opportunity for a big business solution to this huge untapped global social need. And I use the word big advisedly because even then, 10 years ago at concept stage, I knew if I wanted to counter the global impact of porn as default sex ed, I was going to have to come up with something that at least had the potential one day to be just as mass, just as mainstream and just as all pervasive in our society as porn currently is. So I was thinking big right from the get-go. Um, and so I turned Big Love Report into a business. Um, we are the world's first and only entirely user-generated, human-curated social sex video sharing platform. Our tagline is pro-sex, pro-porn, pro-knowing the difference. And essentially, we are what Facebook would be if Facebook allowed you to socially, sexually self-identified, self-express, which it doesn't. We're socializing sex to make it easier to talk about in order to promote good sexual values and good sexual behavior. Um, I said to you earlier, Russell, that you know I believe that everything in life and business starts with you and your values. So I regularly ask people this question, what are your sexual values? And nobody can ever answer me because we're not taught to think like that. Our parents bring us up to have good manners, work ethic, sense of responsibility, accountability. Nobody ever brings us up to behave well in bed. But they should, because they're values like empathy, sensitivity, generosity, kindness, honesty, are as important as they are in every other area of our lives where we are actively taught to exercise those values. And in that respect, what we're doing at Make Love Not Porn with social sex could not be more topical. Because the ear of Me Too has quite rightly surfaced a huge dialogue about consent. Everybody's talking about consent. Everybody's writing about consent. There are lots of thoughtful, nuanced, insightful think pieces out there about consent. Here's the problem. Nobody knows what consent actually looks like in bed. Nothing educates people about great consensual communicative sex, good sexual values and good sexual behavior, like watching people actually having that kind of sex. And Make Love Not Porn is the only place on the internet where you can do that. Every one of our videos is an object lesson in consent, communication, good sexual values and good sexual behavior. We are literally education through demonstration. And we have a revenue sharing business model. Um, our members pay to subscribe, rent and stream social sex videos. And half that income goes to our contributors, but as we like to call them, our Make Love Not Porn stars. So um, we call ourselves at Make Love a Porn the social sex revolution. The revolutionary part is not the sex, it's the social. Because at the end of the day, our single-minded mission is to help make it easier for every single person in the world to talk openly and honestly about sex in order to facilitate better communication around sex, to get to better sexual relationships, to get to better relationships, to get to happier lives. Make Love Not Porn operates in the single biggest market of them all. Not sex, not porn, the market of human happiness. Any regrets in your career, Cindy? Um, no, um, none whatsoever. Um, actually, no, that's not entirely true. Um, if I regret anything, um, I have to say, I wish I'd started working for myself a whole lot sooner. You know, my generation, obviously, was never encouraged to be entrepreneurs. 
you know, um, the mindset, um, especially under heavy parental pressure, and my mother's Chinese, so tiger mother par excellence, was absolutely you get a good education, you get a good job. You know, the idea of working for yourself, starting your own business was absolutely not um, the kind of thing you encouraged to do when I was growing up. And so if I have one regret, it's that I do wish I'd begun working for myself a whole lot sooner. Um, but otherwise, as I say, you know, everything in my life and career has happened by accident. I've never consciously, intentionally planned anything. And it's all worked out um, in an enormously interesting way. I always remember, um, you know, I love my old boss, um, John Hegarty's mantra, do interesting things and interesting things will happen to you. I totally believe that. It seems like a nice, positive, uplifting way to finish today. Thank you very much, Cindy Gallup. Thank you. <laughs> you have been listening to Marketing Week Meet, sponsored by Salesforce and produced by Bauer London Creative, with me, Russell Parsons, and producer Tim O'Donoghue. You can subscribe via iTunes and SoundCloud, where you can listen to previous episodes with the likes of Byron Sharp, Sil Saller, Nicola Mendelssohn, and Jan Gooding. Until next time, goodbye. Marketing Week Meets, sponsored by Salesforce's intelligent one-to-one -one customer journeys, helping you achieve higher revenue, happier customers, and lower costs. <laughs>